Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ErisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Wednesday, May 20th, and guys, I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Regular listeners will know that I've been spending a lot of time recently on asking questions about the fundamental design of the global monetary order, specifically as it relates to the place of the US dollar in that system. I think it's one of the most essential questions we have right now is whether the dollar is still serving both the US and the world as the world's reserve currency. This question, in some ways, I think was part of the provocation behind Libra. It was the provocation behind Mark Carney's idea of a synthetic hegemonic currency that he proposed at Jackson Hole last year. It is part and parcel of China's push for a digital yuan. And I think it has massive implications around the world as we see the dollar react to the context of the COVID-19 crisis. At the end of March, I noticed a thread from Lynn Alden that totally knocked my socks off that related to the dollar. It introduced a set of concepts that are not normally talked about as it relates to the dollar, including the status of creditor and debtor nations and what trade imbalances between people actually do to the dollar conversation. I knew as soon as I read this that I really wanted Lynn to join to share her expertise about the dollar and about the economy writ large. And man, was I, my expectations were exceeded. Let's just put it that way. Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. She's been called by people like George Gammon a fintwit rock star, and uh, I absolutely have to agree. She focuses on value investing with a global macro overlay and has a background in both finance and engineering. As you'll see from this conversation, Lynn speaks to a huge amount of data and context in her analysis and draws upon case studies from around the world to form her opinions. It's this sort of quantitative, non-ideological, non-dogmatic thinking that I think is so important right now. So I hope you enjoy this conversation about the world economy, about the status of the dollar, and whether it serves us and the world as well as it should anymore, as much as I did. So as always, when I do these long interviews, we edit it only very mildly to keep the tone of the conversation as close to as it really was. Let's dive in. All right, I am here with Lynn Alden. Lynn, thanks so much for joining today. Hey, thanks for having me. So as I was just mentioning to you, uh, I've been following your work for a while now, and I think uh, a thread that you had on the dollar really, really captured my attention a, a few weeks ago. It's something that, as regular listeners to The Breakdown know, is a topic that's really important right now and is something that certainly those not only in the Bitcoin community, but in the economy at large are thinking a lot about. So I want to get into that, but I want to kind of start uh, farther back and maybe define some of these key terms. Um, let's start start with your thesis going into this crisis that we were toward we were nearing the end of a dollar cycle uh, what does that actually mean yeah so uh, the current monetary system has been in place since 1971 which is uh, that you know none of the currencies are pegged to anything other than uh, you know essentially that the dollar is kind of pegged to oil in a way uh, indirectly but um, since over those 50 years, roughly, there have been three uh, super cycles of dollar strength and weakness. So the first one, it peaked in the mid-1980s, uh, uh, and then it had a long decline 
Uh, the second one peaked uh, in 2002, and then it had a long decline. And then uh, this current one has been in a, a peak for uh, several years now, starting in uh, 2015. Uh, so that's kind of the the, the overall long-term cycle. And of course, there's different fluctuations each year, um, but those are the three very large uh, changes in the dollar. And every time the dollar has one of those massive spikes, uh, something breaks because uh, the whole system is, is levered to the dollar and uh, the dollar dictates all the liquidity in the world uh, as far as um, trade and currencies go. So in the 1980s, uh, it broke some of the South American economies. Uh, in the late 90s, it broke some of the Asian uh, emerging markets. Uh, and then recently, uh, it's you know it's impacted Turkey, it's impacted Argentina, and it's, it's uh, slowed growth worldwide. Uh, and then in many ways, it also negatively impacts the United States. So for example, if you chart uh, corporate profits in the United States and you, you overlay the dollar with it, uh, whenever the dollar is in one of those giant peaks, you, said, you generally see a long, flat, uh, kind of sideways growth in uh, corporate profits because they have trouble growing in dollar terms when the dollar is that strong. There's so much to dig into, but let's let's keep trying to unpack this for folks. So uh, part of the issue has to do with um, the dollar-denominated debt, right? And in a world in which uh, debts are denominated in dollars, but uh, you know businesses are conducted in the local currencies, the strength of the increasing strength of the dollar can have really deleterious effects, right? We're seeing that in Lebanon right now. We've been seeing that for the last six months in Lebanon. It's an example that we used a couple of weeks ago on this show, yeah. where uh, you know this is a not not just a net importer nation, they import literally everything. And the 1500 Lebanese pound to the dollar peg that they've had since 1997, or they've been trying to maintain, totally broke. And with it has kind of ensued a, a lot of chaos. So how is, is that the story? Uh, is, it, is it a dollar debt issue? Or are there other parts of the story that, that make this dollar strength even more complicated? Uh, the dollar debt is the big thing. Um, and the reason it's set up like that is because uh, for the past uh, 50 years or so, most uh, international trade, a large portion of it happens in dollars. And then specifically, almost all oil purchases happen in dollars. Uh, so even if uh, Europe buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they still pay in dollars, uh, even though neither of them use dollars in their own, in their own uh, uh, economies. Um, so... Uh, all these countries around the world, um, especially emerging markets, have uh, some of them have sizable like dollar-denominated debts relative to their GDP, and uh, to offset that, they hold uh, treasuries as reserves, uh, and that allows them to defend their currencies if they need to, uh, and also to uh, support their dollar obligations uh, if it comes down to it. Uh, so some countries have a lot of reserves relative to their dollar-denominated debts, which keeps them pretty safe. But some of these countries have very low reserves uh, relative to their dollar-denominated debts, and those are the ones that we're seeing crises in. So that includes Argentina, Turkey, uh, Chile, uh, countries like that. The additional layer of complication on this has to do with uh, the the dollar shortage versus uh, the shortage of actual dollars versus uh, dollar treasuries, for example, right? And what happens when the dollar strengthens? So this is something that I I know you've spoken a lot about. Uh, basically, you know, in a crisis, as the dollar as people flee or try to get to dollars, what they have to do is often sell other types of U.S. assets like treasuries, which can have its own type of Im impact. Right. Yeah. If they if it gets to the point where trade slows down, so normally they they have dollar denominated debts and they service those debts uh, with ongoing revenue and ongoing trade. 
Uh, but if those uh, corporations and uh, in some cases sovereign governments, if they can't get dollars because trade has slowed down due to a you know, global slowdown or global recession, uh, then their other resort is that they have to sell U.S. assets to get dollars so they can service those debts rather than default. Uh, so we've generally seen a pattern where uh, whenever we have these sharp dollar spikes during uh, economic slowdowns, uh, foreigners start selling their treasuries. So we saw it happen in 2016, and then we saw it happen again in uh, mid-March when the dollar index uh, went up to about 103, and foreigners sold uh, $250 billion of treasuries uh, in March until the Federal Reserve uh, started setting up currency swaps and other ways to uh, get them dollars uh, without them having to sell uh, treasuries and other assets. Why would just? Uh, I think it's really valuable for for our listeners to to play this out. Why would the the Fed care about uh, the, those other entities selling selling treasuries? Right. What what is the potential impact of that action? So essentially, uh, it's to protect the U.S. Treasury market. Uh, that's the reason they cited. Yeah, and the data supports that that's true. So. Um, Years ago, the U.S. was a creditor nation, which means that uh, as a country, we owned more foreign assets than foreigners own of our assets. And that can include stocks, bonds, uh, and real estate. Uh, but ever since the mid-1980s, uh, we, we switched over because we've had persistent trade deficits uh, as part of uh, us maintaining the world reserve currency. And so uh, years of persistent trade deficits have uh, accumulated dollars overseas, and they've recycled that back into owning uh, U.S. assets. So uh, currently, Americans own about $29 trillion in foreign assets, whereas foreigners own $40 trillion in U.S. assets, which means there's an $11 trillion uh, difference. And that's you know about 50% of uh, last year's GDP. Uh, back in 2008, uh, our uh, position there is defined as the net international investment position. That was about negative 10% of GDP. So we've actually we've deteriorated significantly over those past uh, 12 years. And because foreigners own such a large portion of U.S. assets, uh, including $7 trillion in U.S. treasuries, uh, if there's a dollar shortage, uh, they start rapidly selling U.S. assets, uh, as we saw uh, both in 2016 and then again in, in March of this year. And uh, this this one was particularly severe because the whole treasury market became illiquid. Uh, we saw uh, even though yields went down early in the year in response to the crisis, during that that period, uh, treasury started selling off with stocks in mid March, and uh, the the whole treasury market just became illiquid. The Fed cited this in their meeting minutes in their press releases. So the Fed started buying treasuries up to seventy five billion a day uh, for several days. And then they they increased their uh, liquidity offerings to try to get dollars to what are essentially our creditors, you know, foreign nations that own our government debt that have lent us money, uh, so so that they don't have to sell those treasuries uh, to get dollars. The the natural question becomes so this is you know we had this setup basically where the Fed set up uh, uh, effectively repo operations with other nations right or, or credit swaps or uh, dollar swaps right with these with these other countries in order to curtail this behavior. Yeah, both programs. There's one that's that's an outright uh, currency swap. Uh, that's only with a, a select number of nations, uh, a little bit over a dozen of them. And then there's also an international repo operation where instead of selling the treasuries on the open market, they can lend them to the Fed uh, in exchange for dollars. 
Got it. And so uh, the the question becomes, if the Fed is so concerned with uh, this sort of behavior vis-a-vis treasuries, why not just buy them all? Uh, well, they've actually they've bought more uh, treasuries than have been issued since uh, the repo crisis uh, in September and October. So they actually currently are buying all net new issuance of treasuries. Um, they don't really want to buy more than they have to because uh, – uh, you know they don't want to monetize seven trillion dollars in in foreign held treasuries. Uh, that would significantly weaken the dollar, most likely. Uh, it also would just uh, you know a lot of those foreigners need treasuries to uh, maintain reserves. Uh, they use it for uh, supporting their currencies. Uh, so getting that all on the Fed balance sheet is not something they they are trying to do. Yeah. I, by the way, I ask this sort of uh, big dumb question only for the sake of we're we're living through this period where things that were once sacrosanct and uh, and totally off the table become on the table. So I feel like it's useful to maybe draw some of these lines where we can now, as as everything gets up for grabs a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's not far off because I think uh, going forward, it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to be the primary buyer of Treasury. So. Uh, they're not necessarily going to get all treasures on the balance sheet, but most treasury issuance going forward is most likely going to end up uh, on the Fed balance sheet. What do you think has changed uh, over the last 10 years to, or, or maybe it's less time than that, to make it the case that the Fed has moved from sort of a buyer of last resort for, for these treasuries to the primary buyer? Uh, a couple things. Uh, one is... Um, uh, Entitlements, just demographics have changed. So uh, now that the uh, baby boomer generation is fully in the uh, you know phase of their lives where they're receiving uh, benefits, uh, we've uh, become very top heavy with our social programs. So Social Security and Medicare. So we're paying out uh, a lot of benefits, and we have kind of more structural deficits now. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, debt as a percentage of GDP over time has increased significantly. So uh, you know, before the uh, 2008 crisis, uh, it was like 60% of GDP, uh, federal debt. Uh, and then uh, in response to that crisis, uh, they, they brought a lot of that uh, basically onto the, the all that leverage in the banking system. A lot of it pretty much ended up uh, essentially in the treasury market on the, on the federal uh, balance sheet. So we went up to over 100% of GDP. Uh, so, and then lastly, foreigners are Whenever we have a strong dollar period, foreigners generally don't buy uh, as many treasuries as they were. So starting in uh, early 2015, foreigners haven't really been buying that much uh, treasuries. So uh, for several years, uh, domestic sources were able to buy those treasuries, uh, but we kind of ran out of balance sheet room here in the country, uh, both on bank balance sheets and pension balance sheets and investor balance sheets. So uh, for running out of both domestic and foreign lenders, uh, then essentially the Fed becomes the primary lender, the primary buyer of treasuries. So going back to uh, kind of something fundamental that that you were discussing before, can you explain the idea of a creditor nation versus a debtor nation, and how how sort of these uh, the 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 relationship between a a currency and uh, and a country's economy is normally allowed to go? And where I want to get with this is the the unique place of the U.S. dollar given its role as the world's reserve currency. Yeah, so the net international investment position is a measurement of how much assets that the like how many foreign assets that country owns compared to how much of their assets foreigners own. Uh, 
Uh, and if they have a positive net international investment position, they're basically a creditor nation. And if it's uh, if they have a, a deficit, then they're a debtor nation. So the world's largest creditor nation is Japan, uh, and they have a positive 60% of their GDP uh, um, in terms of their net international investment position, meaning they own a ton of foreign assets. Uh, and foreigners, even though they own some Japanese assets, they don't own nearly as much as Japan owns of their assets. Uh, they also own, for example, over a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasuries. They're one of our, they're one of the biggest uh, lenders, along with China, uh, foreign lenders to the federal government. Um, but then they also own stocks, they own real estate, they own corporate bonds in the United States. Um, and uh, generally speaking, countries that have uh, that are creditor nations that have very high net international investment positions, they usually have pretty strong currencies because they build up those positions by having uh, consistent trade surpluses, and they've managed to build a very large amount of reserves. So they're buffered against currency crises and other problems that can come up. Whereas countries that don't have very large reserves and that uh, don't have a lot of foreign assets uh, generally find themselves um, with liquidity problems and even solvency problems if there's you know, a global recession or dollar shortage. So you used the example of Japan uh, before to talk about sort of the, the relationship between uh, creditor or debtor status and the way that money printing or quantitative easing or, or whatever kind of you, know, you want to call it impacts currencies. Yes. Um, could you go into a little bit of, you know, so one of the things that's happening now is I think people are trying to make sense of, they see kind of the, the, the money printer go burr meme getting popular, um, not just on Bitcoin Twitter, but kind of across, across FinTwit. And they say, oh, we're, you know, in the zone for inflation. But then other people point to the example of Japan as, uh, as someone who's printed a huge amount of money, but hasn't experienced that same sort of kind of rampant currency, uh, devaluation that, that, I guess people would expect. Yeah, one of the main differences between Japan and the United States is that we're total opposites in terms of creditor nation and debtor nation. So uh, they're uh, the largest creditor. We're the largest debtor in terms of absolute terms. Uh, there are some countries like um, Singapore that have their larger creditor nation relative to their GDP than Japan, but Japan's the largest in absolute terms. And there's a couple of things that Japan has going for it that are more deflationary uh, for for them than it would be for the U.S. if we were to print that much. Uh, in addition to demographics and everything, the main thing is that they have a they have a pretty uh, consistent trade uh, balance. So they uh, export products and services uh, roughly as much or more than they import. And combined with the fact that they used to run very very large surpluses. Uh, they've built up all those foreign assets. So they also have all these foreign income streams, dividends, uh, interest, um, all these different um, uh, sources of income coming into the country from their foreign investments. So combined with their trade balance, they have a positive current account surplus, which is just more money flowing into the country every year. Uh, and that gives them a wide latitude to uh, print pretty aggressively without causing uh, some of these problems uh, in the near term that people would think. if you know, Because they've printed... The Bank of Japan's balance sheet is over 100% of Japan's GDP, which is way more than the Fed has printed and way more than the ECB has printed. But the main thing is because they have a, a trade balance, uh, it really prevents their currency from weakening more than uh, you, you'd think. 
Well, and even there, it was interesting hearing you describe. I think it was on uh, George Gammon's podcast how uh, when that the when that the printing started, there was some amount of devaluation, but the the natural kind of uh, float or flow of trade balances quickly resolved it by having net exports be more valuable for a little while because the currency was weakened. Yeah, I did a case study on Japan, and so. Uh, in 2012, they actually had a trade deficit, which is pretty rare for Japan. And it wasn't very big on international standards. Like it's smaller than the US has now. But for Japan, it was a, a pretty big thing. And uh, they also had large fiscal deficits. You know, this was not that long after the global financial crisis, and they hadn't really recovered yet. And so they started printing dramatically. And uh, their, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet was something like 30% of their GDP. And over the next several years, they got it all up to over 100% of GDP. Um, and when they started doing that, the currency uh, weakened considerably compared to the dollar. So it was uh, there was something like 75 yen to the dollar, and then it weakened as much as uh, 125 yen to the dollar. Um, but in 2015, even though they never stopped printing, they, they barely even slowed down printing, uh, their currency stopped weakening. And it actually started strengthening relative to the dollar. And that was because their uh, trade balance uh, over those three years from 2012 to uh, 2015, uh, by weakening their currency, they essentially weakened their importing ability and they made their exports more competitive. And uh, so that helped uh, fix their trade deficit uh, back to being balanced and their current account went positive. And so that way, even though they kept printing, uh, their currency didn't really weaken more and more and more because uh, there's kind of an equilibrium there that if it the weaker it gets, the the uh, more competitive their exports get. And so uh, you can't really print yourself too deeply into a trade surplus. Uh, so as long as there's more wealth flowing into the country than flowing out, uh, which is the case when you have a positive current account, uh, even though Japan kept printing, it, it it its weakening effect on the currency stopped after that point. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. Now, can you kind of building off from that explain uh, this idea that's kind of embodied in Triffin's dilemma or Triffin's paradox that the scenario or the setup for the world's reserve currency is simply different in some ways? Yeah. So, for many countries, um, if their if their trade balance gets too out of whack for too long, they usually find themselves like Japan did, where their currency uh, changes considerably. So uh, a country that runs uh, persistent uh, trade deficits year after year after year, usually what happens is you know 
whenever the next recession or the next crisis comes around, their currency devalues significantly enough that it basically forces the country to have a more balanced trade situation. So their currency gets weak enough where um, you know their, their importing power weakens and their their products and services get more competitive. And that currency weakness, uh, it can be painful for um, uh, citizens of that country, but uh, it can, you know, as long as as long as the economy remains intact and the country doesn't become like a failed state. Um, so as long as you have, uh, you know, the basic framework there, it can be a healthy thing where the country uh, is able to kind of stabilize and then become more competitive and have a more balanced trade position. Uh, but the U.S. dollar, because it's the global reserve currency, and it's the only major currency that uh, energy is priced in and most commodities are priced in, and because there's so much dollar-denominated debt, uh, there's this extra layer of demand for the dollar, uh, whether or not we have a trade uh, balance or not. In fact, in order to supply enough dollars to maintain world reserve status, uh, like in order to, in order for countries to be able to uh, solely buy oil with dollars, we have to make sure that there's a lot of dollars out there. Uh, and that manifests itself in strengthening our currency to the point where even when we're not competitive in trade, uh, we never really normalize back down to having trade balance. So uh, even when our currency weakens, it rarely weakens enough that we become uh, balanced with trade. So year after year, decade after decade, we have a trade uh, deficit that never really corrects itself uh, like we saw from Japan and like we saw from a lot of these other nations. And so in that system, who are the winners and losers of uh, of kind of this persistent trade deficit and just the, the strength of the dollar without the ability to correct? Uh, some of the winners have been um, countries whose currencies are uh, – that are able to stabilize. So for example, Japan's been a winner. Uh, Germany's been a winner. Uh, China's been a winner. Uh a lot of the countries that have these persistent trade surpluses with the United States, uh, they're the ones that win because they we, we basically ship them our supply chains. Um, and so they, they they remain competitive on the world scene, whereas um, uh, except for certain areas, uh, we become uh, uncompetitive, especially in you know industrial production and exports. So uh, we're competitive in software, uh, but we're not very competitive in, in making cars that foreigners want to buy compared to, say, Germany or Japan. Um, so the, the one that hurt the most is the American working class, uh, or, you know, the people that would make a lot of the products that we've essentially shipped outside the United States, all those supply chains. So I want to come back to this point sort of on the on the other side of the COVID conversation as we're seeing a lot of people have or, or take a, a different point of view, I think, on uh, on domestic manufacturing, maybe in the wake of this. But before that, what were your feelings about the dollar coming into this year, coming into or before the before the COVID-19 shutdowns and the crisis? And how has what has transpired since uh, changed or or reinforced those views? Sure. So uh, every year I, I publish a, a annual report that uh, ranks different currencies based on a variety of metrics. And uh, in 2018, uh, and then again in uh, uh, April of 2019, uh, I ranked the dollar about average. Uh, I ranked it better than the euro, uh, and it has strengthened compared to the euro. Uh, but starting in uh, early October 2019, after the repo spike, uh, that's when I started shifting to a more uh, bearish view on the dollar. Uh, essentially because um, 
the U.S. had a, was basically forced to shift from a tight monetary policy to a looser monetary policy, and that can be a significant contributor to uh, a weaker currency. Uh, so for the next three months or so, uh, right into the uh, year end, uh, we saw the dollar weaken uh, pretty significantly uh, for a three-month period. Uh, but then um, in the first couple months of the year, the Federal Reserve balance sheet stopped increasing. And my view at the time was that that was most likely temporary. Uh, we, could, we could look under the surface and see that they were continuing to buy treasuries and monetize the debt, but they were also able to wind down the repo lending a little bit. Uh, so uh, I was expecting that to work itself out by maybe March, April, um, and that they would go back to balance sheet increases again because they'd still be buying treasuries. Um, but then, of course, the COVID-19 hit. Um, so I was at the moment, I was near-term neutral on the dollar. Uh, but then that, when that started happening, uh, just like the case was in 2016 and then also in uh, 2008, we had this dollar spike because um, – uh, again, all the trade, most of the trade shut down. We had uh, oil price declines, so there was just not dollars flowing around the international system, and yet all those dollar debts still existed. So uh, I became uh, near-term uncertain on the dollar. I started tracking it more frequently, um, and uh, my main view at the time was that although we were getting a dollar spike, that it would probably be briefer and lower than some of the dollar bulls expect because of the Fed's uh, – massive response that they have to do if they want to protect the treasury market. And is that is that what we've seen play out? So far, yeah. Uh, the, the dollar index got to uh, 103 in, in March at the peak. Uh, and uh, that also was the bottom, uh, roughly the within a couple of days of the bottom of the equity market. Um, and since then, uh, the dollar index has cons- it came back down to uh, about 100. It's fluctuated in a pretty narrow band. Uh, it's stabilized. Uh, you know, it's always possible we're going to get another spike later this year. Um, but at the current time, it has stabilized back down to under 100. Um, and that's because whenever you get these dollar spikes, foreigners have to sell U.S. assets. So uh, if you look back at 2008, 2009, the market bottomed right when the dollar peaked. And again, in, in March of this year, the market bottomed right when the dollar peaked. So you can kind of think of it as a control system. So uh, whenever the Fed is not loose enough, you're basically going to get um, liquidity problems. You're going to get a uh, dollar spike. You're going to get foreigners having to sell U.S. assets, including treasuries. And you're probably going to see the Fed have to step up and provide more liquidity if they want to protect the system. Uh, so uh, when analyzing dollar strength, you have to take into account both the natural forces uh, of all that debt out there but then also what the Federal response has to be if they want to protect the treasury market. So one of the interesting things is that there's a kind of a debate right now whether the thing that we should be most concerned about is deflationary forces or inflation, right? And both of them can be the, – the narratives can be a little bit um, – uh, narrow, right? And and you know the money printer go burr meme uh, leads to inflation, and deflation on the other side is sort of just a, a byproduct of uh, relentless technology and people having no demand. But you know you spend a lot of time looking at this in the context of actual currency flows. What should people be concerned with right now? Is it either or, or is it a both and? And it's based on timing and and factors like that. Uh, it's a both and based on timing, in my view. Uh, in the near term, uh, deflation uh, is more of a risk, especially for discretionary goods. So, 
you know, no one's really buying cars too much at the moment. So you're going to, you know, you're not going to see a price increase in cars, but essentials like food, uh, we're seeing some inflation in the, in, in that supply chain. Uh, so with the sheer amount of debt and also the amount of wealth that has been lost, uh, at least, especially back in, in March and April, we've recovered some of the, some of the wealth loss since then. Uh, but whenever you have, um, even though the money supply has increased pretty substantially due to the Fed's response, uh, we've seen a reduction in people's net worth from their, you know, their stocks. Uh, we could uh, see some home equity reductions. We don't know yet. It's too early to say. Uh, so if you look back during the Great Financial Crisis, for example, even though the Federal Reserve uh, printed a few trillion dollars, that was actually smaller than the amount of uh, U.S. household wealth lost uh, during that period, and it took several years to recover. So essentially now we have that playing out, uh, but on a swifter scale. So we lost some unknown amount of net worth. Uh, we've already covered a lot of it, uh, and we're seeing printing. So we have a deflationary debt uh, you know, kind of collapse happening if it was unaddressed. But then to address that, we've had the more inflationary Fed response. And at the moment, it's roughly a tie. So we saw a, de a decrease in broad inflation. Uh, we've seen some targeted areas of inflation. Um, but going forward, the amount of support that um, governments are probably going to provide to their citizens, especially the United States, because so many people are, you know, millions of people are unemployed, uh, that, that those money taps are unlikely to stop anytime soon. And uh, we're probably shifting towards a more inflationary environment over the next several years. Do you think that the extent to which it is an inflationary environment is uh, correlated with the 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 amount of money that's actually getting into the hands of regular citizens versus sort of the the corporate industry backstopping we've been seeing? Oh yeah, that's a key thing because if you look back in 2018, most of that QE that was done, people back then feared that it would cause inflation. But in addition to being offset by all of that temporary wealth destruction, also most of that QE never really made it to the people. It, it mostly recapitalized banks. So going into that crisis, banks had very high leverage ratios. They had very little cash reserves. So the Fed basically created a lot of dollars and then bought some of their assets and recapitalized banks. Uh, and you know some of it trickled out uh, to the public, but most of it just stayed within the banking system. Uh, but now we're seeing that a lot of the QE is going to the people. So, for example, the $1,200 helicopter checks that a lot of Americans received, uh, that was funded by you know the Treasury's issuing Treasury securities and the Federal Reserve's printing money to buy them using the primary dealer banks as intermediaries. Uh, same thing for the extended unemployment benefits uh, and other programs that are aimed to um, make up for the fact that Americans and small businesses are losing money. Uh, you know, by providing them with temporary income uh, to offset that. And, you know, those programs have all sorts of issues. Some people benefit more than others. But as a general quantitative fact, it is getting more to the public uh, and more to the, the general money supply than it did back uh, 12 years ago. Well, and you have to think too that in addition to just the actual net increase in assets, we're seeing a 
um, a pretty significant and rapid Overton window shift on how people think about this, right? I mean, this has been the greatest coup for any sort of MMT or UBI, even if for people who come back from completely different perspectives, right? It has normalized this because you have a, an entire citizenry who's saying, well, if every industry in the world is getting bailed out, you know, and they didn't have any protection, they didn't have any resilience built into their systems, why wouldn't you also bail out the citizens? So it feels to me that there's also this psychological dimension to it. Oh, yeah. After spending trillions of dollars to bail out Wall Street back uh, 12 years ago, it'd be hard for them not to uh, do it today for the people when the people need it. Uh, and that's that's kind of the, the path they set up for themselves. Um, and so we're at the point where the Treasury and the Fed are essentially working together. And you have bipartisan support for multi-trillion dollar uh, stimulus packages to try to uh, help people. And um, yeah, it's it's definitely the environment we created over the past decade. I guess that you know a lot of people are also trying to figure out what's the end game, right? And 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 part of the the uh, appealing logic of something like MMT is that basically what it's saying is that this party can go on forever. We're not playing a game of musical chairs. There's chairs enough for everyone. Uh, what are what are the real concerns about uh, uh, about how far this can go and what happens on the other side as it relates to you know something like the U.S. dollar and, and currency? Well, one of the significant concerns is that it can devalue currency relative to um, everyday goods, uh, relative to uh, productive assets. Um, and we actually see, if you look back in history, hundreds and even thousands of years, uh, all civilizations go through these currency devaluation cycles. And uh, you know, different people have focused on it. Like Dalio, Ray Dalio has focused a lot on this recently, where he's, he points out the long-term debt cycle. Um, and so uh, the last time we had this uh, was the 1930s. Uh, we actually had smaller ones in between then, including the 1970s. But um, over time, countries uh, often get out of debt bubbles by devaluing their currency. So that's most likely what we're going to see uh, over the next decade. This will probably be a decade that uh, in many ways mirrors the 1930s and 1970s in terms of um, – seeing rapid currency devaluation compared to things like gold, uh, compared to productive assets, uh, once we're on the other side of this deflationary uh, COVID-19 shock. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly what we're seeing from uh, a lot of different unexpected angles. The Bitcoin community has been paying a lot of attention to Paul Tudor Jones jumping in with with both feet and writing extensively about this idea of a great monetary inflation and have, creating this whole methodology to rank different stores of value, which ended up producing them to uh, open themselves up to get into Bitcoin. Um, so certainly, there's a there's a lot more chatter about uh, about this being a realistic possibility than it feels like there was even six months ago. Yeah, if you look back in history, um, the only other time that federal debt as a percentage of GDP got this high was uh, uh, during World War II, the 1940s. And the way they dealt with that was that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury worked together a lot like they're working together now. Uh, but instead of funding a virus response, they were funding the war. And what they did was um, the Federal Reserve agreed to lock treasuries uh, at a yield of 2.5% or below. And uh, so it was like 0.38% for T-bills, and it went up to 2.5% for the long end of the treasury uh, security market. And uh, to do that, to, in order to have that peg, they had to basically buy any treasuries that were starting to trade over that amount. So their balance sheet uh, grew pretty substantially, and uh, they didn't call it quantitative easing at the time, 
but that's essentially what it was. That was, you know, people think it's a new thing, but, uh, you know, they were doing that in the 1940s, uh, where they were essentially monetizing U.S. debt. And then by locking the yield curve at 2.5%, even as inflation uh, during that decade in 1942 and again in 1947, Inflation spiked into the double digits, but they still locked treasury yields at 2.5% using their balance sheet as their uh, ammo to do that. And that had the effect of treasury holders, even though they were all paid back nominally, they lost on a real basis uh, compared to CPI, uh, compared to stocks, compared to real estate, uh, compared compared to silver. Uh, Gold was pegged to the dollar, so that was a little bit different. But the Treasury uh, and Fed working together essentially inflated away uh, the federal debt as a percentage of GDP over the subsequent uh, decade. Do you think that any of the, call them larger, um, sort of uh, you know secular trends, uh, things like technology rot deflation, right? Technology pushing a, a downward force on prices of things like education or healthcare or real estate, or uh, or trends that might stem from political shifts on on the other side of this, such as uh, a push to bring manufacturing back home, could impact how these scenarios play out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like Technology is a very deflationary force uh, just because it increases our productivity so much. Uh, and then if you go back to this, the second point of what you said, bringing supply chains home, that's a somewhat more inflationary uh, variable because uh, part of our uh, disinflation over the past few decades is that we've continually outsourced our production to cheaper and cheaper places in the world. So one of the reasons that electronics have gotten cheaper, in addition to improving technology, is that the labor to uh, assemble them uh, has uh, gone down dramatically. Uh, so instead of paying an American with expensive health care and uh, that has a higher standard of living to assemble our cell phones, we've outsourced that to uh, cheaper places in the world. So if we're looking to make our supply chains more resilient uh, and uh, closer to home, uh, we're basically going to stop uh, exporting that inflation to other countries and start um, uh, potentially experiencing it ourselves. Uh, And then how that plays out, uh, it depends on the different magnitudes of the variables. So technology is deflationary, whereas bringing supply chains back is is more inflationary. Uh, But the main variable is most likely going to be intentional policy responses to try to increase inflation. Uh, including up to uh, helicopter checks if they have to, because in our current debt-based system, deflation, uh, sustained deflation doesn't work. Uh, so deflation, uh, the natural impact of deflation can have all sorts of positive effects, uh, but the one uh, environment where it doesn't work well is when you have this much debt in the system. So from their point of view, they want to essentially um, inflate away uh, at least the federal debt, and then as much uh, other debt as possible to make it so that uh, long-term holders of that debt kind of get an invisible tax of inflation. So even though uh, they uh, get back all of their returns nominally in the treasury market, um, the Federal Reserve is likely trying to uh, replicate what they did in the 40s and the 70s. And they've already talked about it. They've already had Federal Reserve officials come out and say, uh, as you know, back in 2019, that yield curve control is likely a future policy option. And I would argue that in March of this year, when the Fed came in uh, and started um, 
buying $75 billion a day in treasuries uh, for that month when treasury market was selling off, that they've eventually already essentially already started soft yield curve control. They just haven't formalized it yet. What do you think we're going to see next from the Fed? I mean, so you kind of mentioned more more of this yield curve control. Do you think we're going to see negative interest rates? I know that's something that uh, is top of mind for a lot of folks right now. I don't know if we will or not. Uh, I hope not because um, country after country has showed that it's not a very effective policy. Um, I can see why they'd be drawn to it because uh, if you have this temporary period of deflation, uh, but your interest rates are zero – then you actually have a pretty high real interest rate compared to what you came into the recession with. Uh, so, uh, but negative interest rates, uh, the financial system is just not set up for negative interest rates. So it basically kills the financial system. It kills bank profitability and it can have opposite effects. Like it doesn't increase lending. Uh, so I, I really hope they don't go the negative interest rate route. Yeah, I mean, speaking of negative interest rates and where it has or maybe hasn't worked very well, what's your perspective on Europe right now, and in particular the euro? I know there's a lot of uh, conversation about this as well, and uh, you know, we've had this interesting moment where, right as the European project is uh, is really called upon, you have nations who are sort of moving farther apart rather than coming closer together. Yeah, from a quantitative perspective, the euro is similar to the yen, where um, Europe has a positive current account. So they have more money flowing into the continent than out of the continent. Uh, and that's you know because the euro has a lot of problems, but being overvalued is not one of them. So uh, generally, it's a very competitively priced currency, meaning that um, you know their products and services are pretty competitive on the global market. So they have good trade balances, good current account balances. Uh, but then those – unlike Japan and unlike the United States, those uh, – the fact that they have a monetary union without a fiscal union – uh, creates all sorts of uh, qualitative risk factors. So even though that the currency itself might be quantitatively cheap, there are all these qualitative problems, uh, uh, you know, between Italy and Germany uh, as they sort out their uh, totally different fiscal programs. Even though they have the shared monetary union, so that's a huge tail risk uh, to consider over the next several years. Is you know back in. Uh, Eight years ago, we saw the European sovereign debt crisis play out, and uh, that was essentially fixed with QE. Uh, but now we're seeing uh, kind of the second round of that because COVID-19 uh, is exacerbating sovereign uh, balance sheets that were already very large, especially in, in southern Europe. And uh, they're going to have to sort that out uh, one way or the other, and that could be that they change the way they handle their currency. They could have potentially members leave, or they can uh, try to unify their fiscal uh, policies a little bit more closely. Um, so an, another part of the world that I'm interested in your take on, I'm not sure if you've been following the uh, kind of digital currency conversation, but last year we had Facebook basically announce uh, something that was sort of the equivalent design of a modern day uh, bank or, right? What Keynes proposed, which would be a, a, a currency that was pegged to a basket rather than any sort of individual free, free, 
free-floating currency. Uh, and, you know, they didn't say they wanted to replace the world's reserve currency. In fact, they went to pains uh, to uh, to say that the US dollar was still the most important part of that. But what it did is, again, it, it, it triggered another round of conversation where a few months after that, Mark Carney, uh, the then Bank of England governor, spoke at Jackson Hole and said the world needed a synthetic hegemonic currency, right? Same idea, but from central banks instead of from this random American corporation. Uh, and then you had China, who who really started to pour on the gas of a of a digital yuan initiative that went back five years. Um, you know, they're now in the middle of testing this uh, in in uh, in a couple of provinces. They have major partners, and it's very clear that they're going to roll this out sooner. And some countries, including Japan, have been really nervous that this is a, a play for kind of expanding the economic influence, the monetary influence of China. And I guess I wonder not necessarily just about the specific uh, the digital currency, but whether you see China coming out stronger, weaker, or kind of neutral from this uh, from this crisis. Well, from a geopolitical perspective, uh, they probably have a lot more risks uh, over the next couple of years than they had previously because they're already dealing with uh, trade issues, uh, and now they have a fallout from uh, the perception of how they handle the virus, uh, how much they disclosed about uh, the details of the virus. Um, so, and they also have a, a very leveraged uh, financial system. Uh, but uh, for the broader point, uh, the, the current monetary system is is certainly um, kind of hitting the bounds of uh, where it can go uh, without uh, breaking more. Because if you look back 50 years ago, uh, the United States was a larger percentage of the global economy, and we were the largest uh, commodity importers. And so uh, it, in some ways, it made sense to have commodities priced in dollars because the U.S. was the largest buyer of them. Uh, so, e but even back then, like uh, you brought up the bank core, uh, there were economists that saw that this would eventually be a problem, and they proposed a more neutral uh, reserve asset. But uh, the dollar went out. Uh, but now, you know, decades later, the U.S. isn't even the largest import of commodities anymore. That's China, and yet we still price most commodities in dollars. And uh, as you've seen from March, the Federal Reserve is essentially on the hook. Uh, if they want to um, keep the reserve status, that means that whenever we have these big dollar shortages, uh, the Federal Reserve to, has to either bail out the system or they see uh, foreigners selling uh, U.S. assets to get dollars. And that causes all sorts of problems in our economy. Uh, and then in addition, the strong dollar, as we pointed out, it never gets a chance to weaken enough so that we're, our supply chains are often uncompetitive. So neither for the US or the world is the, the current system really benefiting anyone anymore. Very few interests are served by it. Uh, and the, the way that that solution takes form uh, could be many different paths. And they for years, they had all these chances to do it in an orderly fashion. Uh, so we'll see if they still do or if it, it kind of comes up in a more disorderly fashion. So you could have uh, multi-currency oil pricing. Uh, we have, say, the dollar uh, is used to buy oil, the euro is used to buy oil, uh, the yuan, the yen. You can have a couple major currencies uh, that are all uh, used to price oil, and that would uh, broaden the number of currencies that are used for commodities and probably also diversify the types of debts that different countries have. So we don't have this big debt-based uh, global dollar shortage like we have now, where the whole world is essentially trying to use one country's currency for everything. 
Instead, you have a broader basket of major currencies. Uh, or you can have that in like an SDR package, which is essentially, uh, you know, like a bank or. Uh, or you could have uh, an agreement to use uh, neutral assets like uh, a central bank uh, crypto or a um, uh, gold, uh, things like that. So there's a bunch of different forms they can take to have a more neutral uh, settlement asset that is not tied to one nation's currency. And uh, in addition to benefiting global liquidity, that would also benefit the U U.S., even though it would be rough at first, because it would allow our currency to find its equilibrium and uh, allow supply chains to come back and to make uh, American products more competitive in the global marketplace. It's really interesting. You know, in some ways, since the end of the Cold War, we've been implicitly withdrawing from one side of the global monetary system, which is the U.S. security guarantee, right? And that's been accelerated, obviously, over the last uh, the last eight years, call it, um, in uh, in kind of a, an Obama presidency that that didn't really want to spend much time on things, and then a, a Trump presidency that really wanted to kind of uh, finish off that global order explicitly as part of its mandate in some ways. But we haven't necessarily backed off the the, the monetary side. And, and it sounds like part of what you're saying is that this is a system that even for the US, you know, when we hear things like a strong dollar and our America hat flares, and we say, oh, that must be a good thing, right? But you're what, we're, what you're kind of saying here is that this is a system that at this point may not really be serving anyone to the to to the best uh, of its ability anymore. Yeah, essentially, the strong dollar has resulted in exporting uh, a lot of our supply chains. And I, I think the best way to think of it is that in an ideal world, we neither want an artificially strong dollar or an artificially weak dollar. We want a dollar that is equilibrium. So we want one that is competitive, that gives Americans a lot of purchasing power internationally, but that also is not overpriced so that our products and services become uncompetitive and too expensive in the global marketplace. Uh, because um, uh, that eventually corrects itself to the downside, even though it can take decades. And we're kind of at the, you know, probably getting close to the tail end of that. Um, so going forward, Instead of thinking in terms of strong dollar or weak dollar, uh, the best to look for is a dollar that is uh, at equilibrium and that makes uh, uh, exports and services uh, competitive without totally destroying uh, the purchasing power of our citizens. In the next few years, how do you see uh, this playing out for different assets? How does gold play into this? If you spend any time with Bitcoin, how does Bitcoin play into this? What does the dollar do? You know, where where are you looking? Or maybe even a better way to ask, so I don't put you quite on the spot in terms of predictions, is what are you watching? What are the key signals around these different areas? Mainly what I'm watching is uh, liquidity indicators and also uh, political developments, uh, speci specifically in the U.S. about um, uh, uh, what we saw earlier with uh, checks going out to people, like all these different stimulus packages to get money into the hands of people, because that's where we're probably going to see um, more liquidity come from. We're probably going to see those types of policies persist longer than uh, consensus currently thinks. And that can be inflationary, and that can uh, substantially increase the number of dollars out in the system. And, uh, you know, in the near term, I mean, over the next like couple of years, that can help relieve the global dollar shortage uh, that's you know become very acute. Uh, but then longer term, uh, that would be very beneficial to uh, uh, assets like gold, uh, potentially for Bitcoin uh, even more, uh, 
you know, uh, potentially to certain emerging market uh, equities that have been really beaten down over the past five years in the strong dollar environment uh, and that are trading at um, historically reasonable valuations, uh, things like that. So the main thing I'm watching is just different policies that that would impact the abundance of dollars, uh, both domestically and internationally. So by way of wrapping up, you had a really great tweet uh, the other day where you said, remember when people were saying high corporate household debt levels didn't matter because debt servicing costs were low thanks to low rates? That argument didn't age well. Absolute debt levels suddenly matter when income gets shut off and thus promotes fragility. So now corporations and small businesses around the country and world had to scramble for government funds within the first month of revenue loss or face total insolvency. Then the government is in the position of picking winners and losers, privatizing profits and socializing losses. I think this is dead on. Uh, when you sit back and think about this, do you think we're headed for more fragility solved by more government intervention? Or do you think that there's a possibility of taking a different path where we redesign for something that looks closer to resilience? That's a big question. It'll come down to the will of the people and um, how well people can come together to figure it out. Uh, debt is definitely one of the biggest contributors to fragility. So, um, you know, for years, people justified high corporate debt levels uh, by saying, well, you know, interest rates are so low, so their debt payments are still a small part of their income, uh, which works as long as things are going very smoothly. As long as there's no inflation, uh, as long as interest rates can stay so low, as long as uh, there's no massive disruption to income sources that can work. Uh, but that just showed how fragile we are. Uh, that you know, within weeks of the economy having to stop, uh, we had to have trillions of dollars in spending and, and corporate bailouts and uh, helicopter checks just because the system is so uh, levered, so um, without cash, and so uh, with high debt levels. Uh, generally, uh, we talked about before how over these long-term cycles, there are usually these periods of these periods of currency devaluation. And historically, even though they're very volatile times, usually the aftermath is uh, a more resilient system because you basically have destroyed some debt in in, in percentage terms, in real terms. Uh, so uh, it can be a very disorderly change, but then on the other side of it, uh, you've deleveraged, uh, you know, either nominally or uh, at least in real terms, and you have a base to move forward from there. Uh, but it can it can be terrible while it happens, and how 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 well they handle that, like how well they thread that needle, how how much they have an orderly versus disorderly uh, currency devaluation, uh, that can shape a lot of how it moves forward after that. Well, Lynn, really, really appreciate your insights. Um, for those who want to follow along, for those who want this uh, annual currency report, where can people find you? Uh, LynnAlden.com. And on Twitter, uh, it's Lynn Alden Contact. Awesome. Really, really appreciate the time. This is great. Yep. Thanks for having me. The most interesting thing about this conversation to me is that there is this interesting implication just sitting there around the status of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, where it's not clear to me that it serves the world anymore. And that's fine. But it also doesn't necessarily serve the U.S., and the thing that's so striking is that it's hard to imagine the world shifting to any system unless the U.S. is willfully part of that. 
The U.S. is the most dominant economic power. It continues to be the most economically dominant power in the world, despite everything going on. And to the extent that the U.S. wants to preserve that world reserve currency status, it's hard to see how any other initiative does anything other than kind of nibble at the edges of that dominance. However, if the U.S. were to make the decision that it was no longer in its strategic interest to be the world's reserve currency, to have the additional burden of demand for U.S. dollars to service debts, to have to be forced into basically effectively always running trade deficits for that reason, then something very dramatic and different could occur. So I don't necessarily think we're there yet. I think that the political idea of having the U.S. move away from the dollar as the reserve currency is something that uh, will take a, a generation potentially to actually shift and think about. But I do think that the Overton window on this idea has changed dramatically, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this discussion plays out over the coming years. Thanks to Lynn Alden for joining us for the show. I really appreciate her time, and I appreciate all of your time for hanging out and listening. So until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.